Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back, everybody, to the Wealth Actually podcast. We have an extra special treat tonight uh, due to all sorts of technical issues. You actually get to see me on video, and uh, our interviewee, Christopher Ott, is on video as well. So we're able to take advantage of Zoom, and hopefully we get a little bit, uh, a little bit different uh, uh, flavor on things. But uh, as we head into two, 2021, uh, I thought it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about cybersecurity. Uh, as many people know that at least 40% of individuals have been the subject of a data breach, and it might even be higher. Uh, and for high net worth individuals, uh, over 50% have had a, some sort of financial breach, uh, whether it's a loss of data or some sort of uh, attempt to steal funds. And so with that in mind, I thought it'd be good to talk to someone who has dealt with cybersecurity at the highest levels. And with that, I have Christopher Ott, who is a partner at Rothwell Fig, which is a litigation firm based in Washington. He successfully litigated complex data security matters and has been involved in hundreds of investigations and has won dozens of appeals. Prior to entering private practice, uh, Chris has held various influential positions at the Department of Justice including the Supervisory Cyber Council to the National Security Division of the DOJ. He's investigated the largest computer hacking situations and was involved in dealing with the hack of Yahoo by Russian intelligence operatives, which is the largest data breach in history. So against that background, welcome aboard, Christopher. Thank you, Fraser. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Likewise. And so for our listeners and now watchers, uh, Chris and I went to law school. Uh, so it's been it's a lot of fun to catch up. And uh, maybe for a different podcast, he's got all sorts of crazy stories about his early DOJ days. But uh, we'll leave that for a different time. Uh, we have enough to deal with in terms of cybersecurity and how it relates to high net worth individuals. Uh, so Chris, You've you've seen it at maybe the corporate level. Uh, you've probably had a lot of people who've come to you saying, "Oh my gosh, what's going on? I've been hacked. Uh, I've had some sort of breach." I was somebody who did that. Uh, I got breached by someone who purported to be Cy Vance, the Manhattan DA of New York, and uh, their methods were really interesting because I I bought it. I I, I was like, you know what, this is this could be something. I've met Cy a few times, and it it came through LinkedIn. And it's something that high net worth people are uh, definitely exposed to. What do you think about, and maybe what are sort of the broader basics uh, that people should be thinking about in terms of, uh, A, thinking about the problem and maybe defending themselves? So the, the, the basics are people have to think or a, a new way about what their value is and, uh, and how that can be taken. Uh, this is probably not entirely new, but you have to like reinvigorate your thinking about this. And in broad strokes, in the classic sense, you could say, well, my value is uh, what I own. It's either the, the, the liquid funds or uh, the, the capital that I own in various ways. Uh, that is not all that you own. It's not how people should be thinking about this. And as a starting point, people should think about, well, what data do I have? And the data that you, that you have is um, some of it's predictive which is to say, what are you going to do? Now, it comes to the Cy Vance example that you, you dealt with, 
for Crazier, you, you were dealing with some predictive information about you. They knew you had some contacts at Stivance, that you knew who it was. And that predictive information could put you in a slightly compromised position. Then there's controlling data, data that enables you to control things like your capital. Um, and those can be something as uh, straightforward as passwords and as broad as social engineering. Uh, that predictive information can get to you, can get closer to control over 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 your your assets. Uh, so it could be with enough background research, the bad guys can focus in on all your past pet names if they found a database of that. And that you can you can see pretty easily how that could end up. Oh God, well that's half of my passwords right there, right? right but, by sure. the way, for the people listening, it's not my passwords. But <laughs> I do know people who, uh, 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 including family members, who every one of their passwords is a variation of our second Springer Spaniel's name. So uh, once you <laughs> once you get that, then you, you all of a sudden you have access to the data that they have. When you have high net worth individuals, all of these things are, to borrow a phrase from The Simpsons, embiggened, right? <laughs> so the, the value of the assets that you have are obviously bigger. That's right there in the title we're using, right? But the value of the information and the data that you have is bigger too. And some of that's focused on you and what you control, but some of it's also for the next person. In the Cy Vance example that you have there, it wouldn't surprise me if some hacker somewhere along the way managed to compromise or at least harvest data about Cy Vance to be able to use on collateral attacks on people like you. So it's the same thing with high net worth individuals too. It's not just you, but you could be deployed as a tool against other people. Now, the thing that's interesting about this, at least especially when it comes to my experience working with the intelligence community while I was in the Department of Justice, is that these are old spook tools, right? This is what uh, like John LeCarré was writing about uh, 70 years ago. Rest in um, peace. And, and th these tools are being used in a broader sense by either straight up criminals or combined uh, criminals and spies. We could talk further about that later, but the sad fact of the matter is, is that some, several of the national uh, intelligence uh, communities are also hybrid criminal organizations that will be happy to make money off of you or to, you know, try to uh, harm uh United States or whatever other country you're associated with. Uh, and so because you have those hybrid actors, the concerns are hybridized too. It's not just about intelligence. It's also about um, monetizing the data that they can get. So uh, we're talking a little bit about the data that you have. Uh, another example that really resonates with me was the, the Kim Kardashian uh uh, theft in Paris. Now, not exactly a cyber hack, but something where a very popular influencer uh, had uh, her life out on social media and the, the thieves were essentially able to track her and her whereabouts and ultimately where her jewelry was. Um, maybe some of that too is, is interesting to talk about. I, I, I try to counsel people that social media is an important and interesting tool, uh, but it's something that you've got to really uh, think about and understand the security components. Uh, as another further example, I had uh, a friend of mine, I, I was showing off my ZZ Top keychain on Twitter, and uh, he said, oh, that's very interesting, except the thing that you really shouldn't do is show the key in a picture on social media, because that's something- There are only so many keys. There's only so and many keys. And they can keys. copy of them. 
And it's very interesting for somebody to go to a locksmith with something and say, here's a picture of my key. I lost it. And then, you know, I live in a New York building, so it should be there should be a couple of steps for people to get inside it. But uh, for some people, they wouldn't. And that might be what gets you through the gate and maybe a security compromise. Yeah. And, that, and that's the part, what you're talking about there when it comes to social media and the Kim Kardashian example is to think about, again, the value of, of your data. Your movements are very important data, which is something uh, from the predictive uh, angle that I was talking about before that is important. You could tell where somebody's going to be. That's, that, that would be valuable for straight up uh, standard theft, like we were talking about uh, in the Kim Kardashian context. She's out of the hotel. You can rob her jewels. Right. right. Like that's there's straight that or, oh, she's going to the restaurant. We can wait in the parking lot and rob her there. Right. There, there are those things. Any high net worth individual is already thinking about the danger when it comes to their movements, but they're not necessarily integrating the broadcasting their movements out through the social media is very dangerous. The key thing you're talking about is very interesting. Uh, there are only so many keys out there. And a locksmith can literally look at a key and then come up with a blank uh, that will work on your one's door pretty quickly, like in, in minutes. Right. Um, right. And so uh, you have somebody who's following your social media, they could literally have the keys to your home minutes after you post something innocuous like that. So you have to do a real co- uh, uh, cost-benefit analysis on broadcasting information about oneself in social media. For me, because most of the rise of social media occurred while I was interacting either with the criminal justice or, uh, uh, framework or the intelligence community, I have almost no social media. So it, it's relatively e- easy for, for me to look at it from, from an outsider. But I, I also recognize that it's a very real part of how we have to interact with the world. But you have to think about what you're broadcasting out there. Is this something I want to put out there? And think about your movement. Uh, Think, uh, that can predict either where you're going to be, where you've been, uh, uh, the things about actual physical, physical security to one's home. I, I would try to avoid showing the doors and entrances that you're using in and out of a place because that could be predictively used to for the same nefarious purposes we're talking about, right? If they know you're always using a certain entrance to your building, then they know precisely that. And, right. and that's and that's and that's problematic for all kinds of things we don't want to think about, uh, but we we have to, especially in high net worth individuals. Um, and so, so, and uh, it, I'm sorry, go ahead, Fred. No, so I mean, the, certainly tracking movements and and understanding where you are. Uh, a lot of people are hypersensitive to that with uh, carrying their phone, but they don't understand the the footprint that you leave on that front. Maybe to take it to a different level, um, you know, for the high net worth space, when they hear cybersecurity, they're worried about having their bank accounts looted or having their credit card information taken and having someone run up a you know, $50 gas bill and then going to Home Depot and uh, cleaning that out until it goes away. Uh, how do you think about that in terms of uh, being safe and cautious uh, at, at the individual level and then at maybe the family office level where uh, I've seen it before where people will call up the head of a family office purporting to be uh, the wealthy individual who underpins it and saying, I need $500,000 wired over here, make it happen. Um, how do you think about that? And it, to me, it seems like a process workflow issue as much as a technology one. But when you're sort of looking at the broader context of, of keeping your 
uh, your wealth safe. Uh, how do you advise people on that? Or how do you, at, at some point, how do you get past, uh, get past any sort of objections to the flexibility that technology provides now? Well, well some of it, to kind of proceed in reverse order in what you're talking about there, some of it sure. very much is the workflow um, uh, issue you're talking about. When, when it comes to, say, one's brokerage or wealth manager accounts, uh, it is very useful to have a personal relationship with those people, a, a personal ongoing relationship. Uh, an example from my own family, uh, my, my father's own um, uh, wealth manager got a call from somebody claiming to be my father saying right. you have to uh, send $100,000 to uh, this account in Australia uh, immediately. Don't ask me any other questions. Now, the exigency of that may have uh, spurred a lot of people in similar money circumstances. Okay, well, I better send that money. You know, the, the guy who's got the keys to it is sending, is, is asking us to do it. But yeah, my father spends a lot of social time with that particular money manager, right? And he's like, there's no way that Alan is going to ask me to do this and not say anything more. They put the brakes to it immediately and the money never went out. So uh, those kind of low-tech relationship um, um, fixes will be very powerful when it comes to the keys to the biggest amount of money you have. But that all circles back to you have to think about who has control over the money itself. So if the money is in the wealth manager's hands, you have to think about, okay, uh, how what processes, as you mentioned, do I set up before any large amounts of money go out? What is the usual way to engage with it? Because the more of those processes you build up, the harder it is for a criminal or an intelligence operative to insert themselves in unless they spend tons of time researching it. Uh, but uh, there are technological problems too. Even uh, not ev Certainly not everything you're doing is going to be through an analog wealth manager, an actual person. Right. right. And one, uh, what a lot of people do is they do a lot of their interactions through their phone, the phone itself. The phone's very useful. It's kind of a central clearing house of information. We use it for two-factor verification of things if we forget passwords, et cetera. Uh, and we think of it as kind of inviolate, that it, it cannot be compromised. But that's not the case, especially if you're a person who uh, uh, is uh, working fairly extensively in um, cryptocurrencies. I, I would say that there are uh, criminals right now working to try to hijack your phone. There's a, a method called SIM hijacking uh, by which uh, it, with a couple of hoops, they can take complete control of your phone in 10 to 15 minutes. Right. And you wouldn't necessarily know it until you stop getting the notifications, right? So it could be an hour or two that you notice that something is up. And during that time period, all of the uh, verifications, all the two-factor codes are going back to the phone that's now controlled by the bad guys. Right. So what you have to do is you have to say, okay, well, I can't have it all reside there because even that's vulnerable. So you have to think, well, what do I do? Well, uh, should I push more things off to the wealth manager? Well, for certain people's lifestyles, that's maybe what they should do. They should have that analog component where people, where you're interacting with a person. For other people, they say, no, I want, I have to be able to be agile, quick. I need to be the decision maker on these things, and I want to do it online. If that's the case, then you have to change your own personal workflows on things. When it comes to your passwords and your verifications, don't keep them on your phone because the phone, the phone is vulnerable, right? Right. Make, make it physical, make it analog, have a code card that you keep with you. 
vary up your passcodes uh, as often as you can. Do not make them common between platforms. Your Google password should not look anything like your Facebook password, like your Chase password. Those three shouldn't have anything in common because if one is, one is compromised, you don't want your codes to be a few keystrokes away uh, from from the next one, right? Um, uh, the, the, when I was dealing in the Yahoo uh, blowback, blow uh, the people had the most problems where, were where their other codes, like their Apple codes, et cetera, were the same codes they were using for their Yahoo uh, email. Right. Uh, if that was the case, they had a cascade failure across their informational flows, and they were completely owned by Russian intelligence which is not a good situation to be in. No, <laughs> nobody wants it. It's not a warm and fuzzy situation. Uh, <laughs> there's almost no good that can come from it. <laughs> so, no, uh, so, no upside. No upside, right? Uh, uh, so uh, those are kind of the two fronts you have to think about. You have to think, okay, how am I going to control my information flow and the control of these things? And how do I make it hard to be hijacked? Some of these things are out of your hands, right? Like I, I deal with a number of business email compromises where what happens is, is a vendor or somebody in between a transaction gets compromised and that person is actually a bad guy. They have control of the bad guy's email account. So a, a high net worth example would be I had a, uh, a, he, a, a hedge fund, hedge fund uh, CEO uh, client who was buying a new property uh, and the closing attorney was hacked. So the wire instructions, et cetera, were being handled by the bad guy. Lovely. And uh, it, it had inserted themselves into the conversation. And that's a large amount of money that's changing hands. It's supposed to be, this is somebody who wanted to make this transaction quickly because you need to have access uh, on a daily basis to living there in that city. So he wanted this condo clo closed uh, quickly. So he wanted to act, act with dispatch. They were working quickly. Um, as soon as he realized something was up, though, he, he hired us. We worked quickly, and we were able to trace down the money. And he was actually—he's actually a situation where, uh, between the various methods we've come up with, we've recovered all of the money. And that doesn't happen with everybody. That's not no. common. <laughs> right. But uh, it, it is something that can be done because he was aware enough to say, "Okay, this is not the way the information flow should be going," and he acted immediately. We went immediately to the Secret Service and the FBI. We went immediately to the wiring bank, put some pr pressure on them, went immediately to the closing attorney, not by email, uh, <laughs> and started interacting with the closing attorney's uh, malpractice insurance. Between all that, he, he was made whole and uh, made the closing. So there are high net worth individuals can have the advantage to recover from these things and also to act agilely in a way other people don't. Because the average person's not necessarily going to be able to engage on all Let's talk about a subject uh, you talked about, a hedge fund uh, CEO. Uh, for those people who own their own businesses and uh, ransomware and uh, essentially blackmailing, where someone gets a hold of uh, either the email processes or uh, essentially the server and says, you, you're not going to have access to it unless you pay me you know, $50,000. And then it turns into 50000 to 100000 to sort of the serial blackmail component. Uh, good business practice would say that you should have processes in place uh, so that people aren't uh, subject to phishing and, and other malware, malware insertion techniques. But if it happens, and uh, let's say you've tried to drill uh, and get the employees to understand 
how uh, not only the magnitude of the problem that this can cause, but also the uh, just sort of the inconvenience that that happens. How do you, um, A, in terms of general processes, are there some good rules of thumb? And then B, what would you suggest to people, and I'm sure you've had this happen, where they call you and say, my business is shut down, what do I do? It's a case-by-case determination, right? And so the first thing you have to say is, what what do they have, right? What's there and what's not. Now, most uh, instance server environments, even on the scale you're talking about where it's a family business, there's some duplication involved. There's some backup. Now, if you have those backups, then whatever servers they've seized are not necessarily the end of, of the conversation. Uh, so um, it could be, you know, uh, all your all your servers are belong to us, right? Uh, pay 50,000 50, Monero or um, uh, it'll be encrypted forever. Um, and you'll say, okay, let's take a deep breath. Is it actually everything? So you have to see what the environment is. What is our backup situation? Uh, even small businesses often will have backups, even if they're not actively thinking about what the backups are. The, the, the way our virtual environments are structured is there's often backups to backups to backups. Uh, and it's not necessarily a case where they've actually taken everything. So if you're in a situation where you can prevent, uh, even when it's not clear, but you can prevent interruption in your business, uh, then you, you don't engage with these guys. <laughs> you, you, brick, you brick the servers and you don't engage. Right. There are other situations, even in large money situations, where uh, there's only the one place where the information resides or so much of it resides there that there's complete interruption. And the only way to keep your uh, clients whole and to keep operating is uh, to get it unlocked, in which case, you know, sometimes you have to start engaging with them. And there are specialists that help you engage with making those payments. Um, it's problematic, right? You should think that long and hard before you do it. Sometimes the people doing this are very unsavory people, by which I mean it is not uncommon for the malware to be deployed by way of example by uh, North Korean hackers. Right. Uh, yeah, North Korean hackers, they're going to use that money to develop nuclear weapons in North Korea. That's what they're using that money for, right? Um, so on a moral level, you, you might not be, be happy with dealing with that, right? Um, also, there are potential consequences to it. The, the, the legal and... Um, Criminal consequences to ransomware haven't shaken out yet, but there's at least been periodic statements by uh, uh, watchdogs like uh, the, the FinCEN for f- financial institutions, uh, uh, Treasury, um, uh, that uh, paying ransomware can put you in liability just sure. for getting yourself out of trouble, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think there's probably a lot of teeth to that. But there are collateral uh, problems to it. The Uber just had a, pr- a problem recently where they had gotten certain processes hacked and their head of security paid the, the essentially the ransomware to the hackers and then concealed the fact of the hack from the investors. Oh. Your publicly traded information uh, in organizations where you have any kind of disclosure um, obligations at all, if you're a money manager uh, on the New York DFS uh, side, uh, they're pretty robust cybersecurity disclosure requirements. Um, if you could seal the fact of this hack and pay the ransom, 
you could be facing significant regulatory, in the case of that Uber security manager, criminal liability for concealing the fact of the hack. So um, these are hard decisions. Don't make them in a vacuum. Get as right. much information as you can. Figure out, if always figure out if there's another way. The more choices you have at the point you make a decision, the better chance you have of making the best decision. And that's what I would counsel. So if I if I were a a hacker and blackmailing somebody, I not that I would necessarily know how to do this, but if I would say if you go to the authorities, uh, we'll you know we'll blow everything up. How do you involve the experts without alerting uh, your captors, basically? Well. Uh, I wouldn't worry as much about that. So there, the involvement of, say, the FBI or the Secret Service is going to be after the decision, right? Like, even if you're engaging them same day, they mobilize, they start thinking. The, the, the bad guys aren't going to have uh, surveillance on your business to see who's coming in and out. And theoretically, that's possible, but that's probably not what's going to happen. You just have to make your best decision about the involvement of that. Often that's post hoc. Right. Because they're going to be dealing with historic, the FBI, the Secret Service could be dealing with historical information no matter what. Some of it's uh, evanescent, but as long as you get them involved in due course, they're not going to lose the trail just by you calling them 36 hours after you resolve what your specific problem is. And even if you call them the same day, it's unlikely they'll show up on site within 36 hours. So make your best decisions at each point. Don't worry as much about that threat. That's largely empty. Mm -hmm. uh, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about. They're either going to, to brick you or not, uh, and they're always going to try to accept payment first because that's the point of the whole thing. Right. Uh, another topic uh, that's come into my field of vision, I had a friend who asked me, uh, he said that uh, – uh, he visited certain sites that uh, were probably not the most reputable and that he got an email basically saying, pay me 6,000 in Bitcoin, or I'm going to uh, post video of you theoretically co-opted from the camera on your computer. Correct. <laughs> and uh, that I will make it public and uh, blow up your reputation and therefore your career and your family, et cetera. Um, what, what does that look like? I, I'm sure there are many people who, you know, have uh, tripped over various websites that aren't the, aren't the best, but at the same time, uh, that sort of blackmail, it, 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 it strikes me as sort of very close to the Nigerian prince <laughs> type of scheme. Well, that's uh, what it is. Uh, it, it, it's a classic being, uh, uh, kind of, uh, zhuzhed up for, for, uh, uh, current times. There's an old scheme like in the, like the uh, Sir Francis Drake uh, scheme, et cetera. There's an old scheme where you would just send letters saying, I know what you did. Send money to this post office box or I'll tell everybody. That's right. the old scam, right? And it's the same thing here. They don't, it's theoretically possible they know uh, what you did. It's very unlikely that they've co-opted your camera and have a video of you. Um, um, that, that in general is something that, the intelligence services would be able to do, but they wouldn't engage with you on, on this level. Sure. So almost certainly that email is a revived version of the old blackmail scam. I know what you did, uh, pay me money or, or else you'll get in trouble. They, 
that they may there may be some targeting on it, probably just a blunderbuss approach, but there may be some targeting on it in that they scraped some information about the emails of people who visited certain websites. Um, that's possible. That's probably the extent of it, that they have some browsing information. Uh, even that would be fairly sophisticated. The most likely thing is they just count on the prevalence of ugliness being such that they'll uh, they'll count on you having done something bad and you fill in the blanks, like those right. cold, cold reading um, uh, skills. So that's probably what they're doing. In terms of how to respond to it, um, first thing is, again, for kind of the personal informational uh, mapping, right? It's, okay, what have I done here? Right? Right. <laughs> like, is my life like a digital version of the plot of eight millimeter? Okay, then I've got a different decisional calculus than somebody who visits um, uh, porn periodically, right? Uh, so, uh, yeah, okay, am I that worried about? No, yes. Okay, and then you go to your next decisional point. If it's a legitimate kind of blackmail situation, there's a whole complex decision tree you should get involved with. You should get consultants helping you to deal with it. You should get the law enforcement people involved. Almost always, the email you're describing is just a scam that's trying to pull people in. Um, and if you can honestly take um, stock of what your exposure is on that front and say, okay, yeah, that, that can't be what they're saying, uh, uh, or I'm not worried about what they're saying, then engage it that way, which is to say, never talk to them, never respond. Right. Uh, and uh, this, by the way, is something that's useful in general. Um, I almost never open an email unless I'm expecting it. Hmm. Uh, and and uh, there are a, a, a lot of reasons for this. And maybe people, other people have different experiences, but if I don't know the person, or I can't remember just by glancing at the header what they're talking to me about, there's no good reason they're talking to me about it. They, they want money. They want to trick me. They want to do something else, right? right. And uh, the, the Trojan horses, the malware you're talking about, the more sophisticated ones, all you have to do is open up the email, and they start working on the weaknesses in your laptop or, or your phone. Um, so just don't open the emails probably improve your quality of life a fair amount too to not have to uh, <laughs> right. fade through this stuff. Uh, so, boy, we've covered a lot in a short period of time. Uh, as a sort of a, uh, a summary or a couple of bullet points for people to think about uh, in their online life and in their uh, sort of personal security around their wealth, what, what should people really focus on? Uh, you know, if they're looking for things to do during a pandemic and getting started on 2021 uh, and revamping things. Uh, I would imagine the first thing is the thing we always talk about, which is, you know, revisit your passwords, uh, check your bank accounts, kind of make sure that you don't see any strange transactions so that you're able to, uh, you know, catch up with any problems that are, that are already out there. Um, what, what else do you think people should really focus on? You should, uh, you know, that's the uh, kind of a cyber spring cleaning should include everything you're talking about. It should, you should take a step back and say, what am I putting out there and how do I have control over it, right? Some of that is the cybersecurity uh, stuff that we're talking about, right? Which is to say, uh, it's your own control over your own information. But the, the other part of it is 
the, the terms privacy and cybersecurity often used interchangeably, they're a little bit different, right? And uh, the, the privacy is how other people are using your, your information downstream, right? So a lot, there are a lot of free services we get from things, uh, but that are pushing the information downstream in ways we might not like and could cause us to lose control of it, by which I mean a lot of our browsing information in a very targeted way, what we're looking at, how long we're looking at it, where we are when we're looking at things. Uh, you know, since we're talking about a one mirror, uh, meter fidelity when it comes to geolocation, what I mean by that is they know if you're looking at Nordstrom Rack online on your toilet in, in a very real sense. <laughs> so right. uh, you have to, but you, you, because of new laws, et cetera, G, GDPR and the California law, you actually have some control over how to toggle that. And toggling that will in, increase your awareness of what your exposure out there is. And also, prop, uh, I can't see a circumstance in which it would improve your security. Because the less you're sharing of that information, um, the less chance it is they can get out there in the wild. Right. It, as a practical matter, uh, if Google were to lose control over its Google Ads database, um, it's such a huge database, it'd be very difficult for anybody to make uh, heads or tails out of it. Mm -hmm. However, uh, big and, um, uh, I'm sorry, I just got distracted by something. Uh, big companies do fall in ways that, that, that can hurt you. Uh, uh, Twitter famously fell for a number of its hot, highest profile people who were uh, 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 fished as part of a Bitcoin scam. Uh, where they and Twitter lost control over dozens of very famous people's accounts, and this was only a couple of months ago. Right. Um, and uh, if if you're not thinking about how you keep control over your accounts and how you get notification of these things, the bad guys can have control over that mouthpiece for far longer than you want, and be out there like as Cy Vance contacting Fraser Rice and trying to uh, part him with what what little royalties he's getting from wealth actually and that is perhaps the greatest crime that i, I can think of this man worked so hard to bring you that book and you're going to take the money from him don't right. do it <laughs> uh, one last thing before we sign off uh looking into the future a little bit uh i was uh I forgot what story I was reading about, but I remembered the movie Rising Sun where uh, video was faked to implicate someone else in a murder. And so this gets back to the concept of deep faking and putting people that may not have been in places uh, in certain videos that could be incriminating. Uh, what, what is the state of the technology on that? And not that there's anything you can really do about it. If people have your likeness, they could probably insert it into other types of video that could be incriminating. A, I guess, what's the state of the technology on that? And then B, assuming there's not much you can really do about it, um, are there processes in place that you should be thinking about if there's a problem there? So the state of technology is fairly scary in that it's pretty convincing now, right? right. The South Park guys have a whole a deep fake Trump channel that's uh, pretty convincing. Uh, they have him uh, reading a um, version of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer uh, that is uh, the pretty convincing and, and compelling. Uh, so the, the technology uh, can be scary on that front. However, it's only convincing if through the lens you're looking at, right? 
So if you're looking at through a streaming window, then okay, the video is a video. And you'll say, well, that's convincing or, or that's not. Uh, however, what some people are going to have to internalize about these fakes is that it is not convincing under the hood. Because the various calculations that are being made to paste one picture on the other is not that hard to look at the code and see that it's fake. Right. You have to get used to that, right? Or you have to get used to deploying tools that could do that for you. So, uh, it, 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 you know, uh, uh, a... Um, yeah, you know, my, my 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 dad has an Austin Healey uh, sports car, right? But they also make the fiberglass versions of those, right? And the fiberglass version is pretty uh, compelling until you lift open up the hood, right? right? And you'll know the moment you look inside the car that it's not it, and probably even if you drive it. So there's that. The other part uh, that is the advantage right now when it comes to deepfake is um, Nobody that I've seen has the ability to do it any convincing way, real time. Uh, so uh, demanding, right now we all have to rely on video, demanding real time interactions with people instead of recordings helps you stay away from getting deep faked by say, uh, vice president of your company saying wire X money, right? Yep. And uh, there've already been cases where that kind of compromise which is because of the business email compromise we just talked about is being accomplished by a deep fake. It's very interesting. That means they're cultivating the vice president's image. They're creating a deep fake video. They're sending that message. Uh, they can also do it with audio, uh, but doing it in real time can't re really be done right now. So that's something where you could stay ahead of it. Mm -hmm. The other part is, is that the technology cannot replace the nuances of relationships, which our brains are very hardwired for. If you, have an ongoing relationship with people. This is just another reason to have meaningful relationships with the people you're dealing with or dealing with your wealth. Um, they're not, even if they were able to do a real-time video fake, they would not be able to imitate somebody you have those relationships with in the minutia, et cetera. They wouldn't mm -hmm. be able to answer the question, uh, like even just standard pattern about how's your dog doing. They're just not gonna be able to do it in convincing ways. And that's a problem even the highest level of um, uh, uh, highest level of intelligence operative cannot replicate that. So one of the, one of the things I, I was dealing with just before I left the, um, uh, the Department of Justice was I was on the fringes of uh, the, the Russia investigation involving hack and the Democratic National Committee. Mm -hmm. I, and I, uh, they were at various points, the Russian intelligence was pretending to be a um, either uh, in one case an American journalist and another case a Romanian journalist. And anybody who was American or Romanian respectively could tell immediately that they were not who they said they were. Uh, it was either flaws in diction, you know, uh, or uh, the way they're presenting themselves. It's just very obvious that it was fake. So those analog skills, the power of our brains built up by relationships and experience are still a very powerful tool in having it. So, uh, those those two parts again. I apologize. I apologize if I've gone over long. Is you yep. have to remember these things are not uh, are not convincing once you look under the hood. It's just like a fake sports car, right? Uh, so that's the first thing. To have the patience to internalize that that difference, right? And take time. By the way, in your everyday life, if you're reacting to a video, to see what the cycle is, to see if the video actually is legitimate. If it's something that makes you angry or incensed, take some time for people to internalize that for you. At some point, there'll be tools available to everybody to do it themselves, but rely on the other systems to do that.
because it's not hard to see if they're fake right now. Even the very convincing ones, it's very obvious. It's like uh, in the Matrix movie, once those people are used to looking at those strange codes, looking up and down, they could see the blonde, the redhead, et cetera. Right. Uh, and uh, the, the other part on it is, you know, uh, now more than ever, try to build up relationships you have. Uh, it, it, those relationships with, with people will be the greatest check on uh, technology amok that you can think of. Really cool and terrific advice. Uh, Chris, thanks for taking the time to sort of go over what I think is a, a, a vital uh, component of wealth management to be sure, but also just daily living. Uh, it's, it's, we, we could go on for hours, I'm sure. Uh, but thanks again for coming on and uh, you know, good luck down in Washington and uh, continued success on the legal practice. Thank you. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.